You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and open sex archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. In this episode, we continue our Radical Access series, where we think about what it means to be an alternative library. We'll share conversations with New York-based alternative libraries, including the Free Black Women's Library, Sorted Library, and our own Interference Archive. Artist, scholar, and librarian Oloranke Akimo started the Free Black Women's Library in her Bed-Stuy apartment. We talked about the library, accessibility, and the importance of centering Black women's voices. My name is Ola Ronke Akimo. I am the creator and director of the Free Black Women's Library. The Free Black Women's Library is a mobile library that currently contains 1,000 books, all written by black women, and it travels all throughout New York City. Each month, it pops up in a different location, uh, usually a public space. For every book you bring written by a black woman, you get to take a book. And each time the library appears in a different location, there's a different activity that people can take part in. So it's also a social art project and a public art project and a community engagement project. What inspired you to start the Free Black Women's Library? Well, there were a couple of different things that uh, kind of motivated me to start it. The first one being that I really love books. I love to read. I love libraries as far as like what they represent. To me, it's one of the few like legitimate institutions. <laughs> and, you know, libraries are a social site. They're a resource. They're a space for people to come and gain access to knowledge and also connect with other people. Uh, wanting to do something that really centers black women writers, black women stories, Um, black women brilliance, creativity, uh, diversity, the diversity within black womanhood. Uh, So I wanted to do something to kind of bring attention to the fact that there's a long legacy of genius uh, within black women's writing and give people access to that and also uh, have moments where we can just kind of bask in that archive of information and uh, storytelling. How did you begin to create a collection or gather a collection? How did you go from your initial inventory to what you have today? I already had like a pretty large collection of uh, black women's books. In addition to that, I kind of did a call to my community, letting them know I'm going to be starting this project. It's going to be a mobile library of black women writers. And if you would like to donate any books to this project. Please mail me books. I started getting books in the mail within weeks. Initially when I started it, I had 100 books and now um, I have a little over a thousand. Right now, all the books are in bankers boxes and suitcases and they're kind of stacked on top of each other, like up to the ceiling. Um, The pop-ups happen once a month and sometimes twice a month. 
So that means taking all those boxes out, putting them in an Uber or a Lyft or getting a ride from somebody, taking them to the location and the library's up for a day or a week or a month. And then it's a deinstallation where all the books go back in the boxes and all the way back home and stacked again. I have a Patreon page where I'm raising money and hoping to get like enough sponsors and patrons that I can afford either a storage unit where I can keep the library when it's not open or buy a vehicle that can serve as a bookmobile because the most challenging part of this project really is it's books, traveling with books. Everything I'm doing right now is basically about figuring out a way to make it more sustainable, a way to make it easier for me to like move through my house because all the books won't be stacked up in there. (laughs) The Free Black Women's Library has popped up in various neighborhood spots. At a laundromat, a bus stop, a barbershop, a vintage clothing store, and a bar. It's also popped up at institutions and events throughout the city, including the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Museum of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts, Weeksville Heritage Center, Concord Baptist Church, Afropunk Festival, Bed-Stuy Pride Festival in Herbert Von King Park, and the National Black Theater. Outside of the city, the project has traveled to Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, and North Carolina. How do you determine the spaces where you will install? Well, it's really important to me that wherever the library is, it's a free space. I don't want there to ever be a barrier between somebody wanting to come to the library and not being able to come just because they can't afford it. It's really important to me that the library is in a space that is accessible by all different body types. It's important to me that it's um, a kid-friendly space. It's just really, it was just really important to me that my entire community would be able to uh, have access to this and feel comfortable. You know, I'd like to just meet people where they are. Lastly, we asked Ola Ronke about the purpose of the Free Black Women's Library. Part of its purpose is to create access to Black women's books and also to celebrate, to center, to honor Black women's writing. Give people an opportunity to find out about all of these women, to connect with these books, connect with each other. You know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of negativity that's thrown at black women and girls within this culture. A lot of negativity, a lot of um, harm, a lot of abuse. And I feel like the library is hopefully offering some healing and some peace and kind of serving as a balm for this harm that's being caused. It's a way for me to kind of affirm that our stories are sacred, our stories are important, our stories are valuable, they're fun, they're interesting, and it's not just, uh, we're not a stereotype, we're not a monolith, we're not objects, we're really creative, deep thinking human beings. We deserve to have the spotlight. You know, uh, we deserve to have our voices heard. There's a lot of 
stuff out there that it's just kind of like damn like is this is this all we have all we have and I just want to say no this is not all we have we also have all of this it's just a good way to push back against uh, certain ideas and labels that are placed on us um, it's a way to kind of destroy that those ideas we're writing about everything that you could possibly imagine and offering gems that anybody can enjoy like you really you don't need to be a black woman to enjoy Audre Lorde or Alice Walker or Edwige Dandekat or Chimamanda like anybody can get into these words and get their brains turned on and their hearts opened up my name is Dev Ashland and I am the creator of Sword Library Sorted Library began two years ago when Dev acquired more than 1,500 books from a used bookstore that was closing down, proving too small for his one-bedroom apartment and too heavy for its sagging floors. Dev chanced upon a new home for the collection at the IFP Maine and New York Media Center in the Dumbo neighborhood of Brooklyn. Since moving to Dumbo, Dev's library has evolved, now holding more than 3,000 books, organized into small collections created by its visitors. What's more, it serves as a scale model for a much grander vision for the Sorted Library. We spoke to Dev about this grand vision, the library's interactive elements, and the radicality of nonlinear inquiry. So the vision for the Sorted Library is to have a large space with 12 rooms the size of the one, the one I have now, which is like a small living room or den in a place like Beacon outside of the city. And in each of the rooms would be a library of a famous creative. So imagine one room, you walk in, it's Kurt Vonnegut's library, and it's copies of every book that he owned when he passed away. The next room next to it is Audre Lorde and Fernando Pessoa, and who knows? And so the idea is that if you actually have these collections of books, copies of, you can go and search for your answers within these other people's context. Can you tell me about the interactive component of the library. Yeah, so I mean, I had the space. So the the basically the room in the library that we have now serves as a model for one of these rooms and it is both the books that I chose that from that initial bookstore adventure and then all these trips to different estates. I go with friends and we, you know, pick three or four books and create these small collections and then I'll buy copies of that. So this is a, the library as currently exists as an amalgamation of all these trips to different estates and what I wanted people to do and experience to actually understand what it feels like to pursue questions in a nonlinear way is I have people come up with a collection. So you have a question and you're supposed to pick three, two to two to four books, two to five books that help address that question. And I'm not going to have the book you're looking for because it's a thousand books, two thousand books. But there's going to be something, and it is going to be inter interdisciplinary because it's a person's life. You know, it, it's the books that they chose to live within, and so you end up searching and discovering books and coming it, pulling it together to create a collection. And the collections range from, you know, books with breakfast theme covers to, you know, uh, books written by white people about about worlds they don't know you know, you know it's like it's, they're both like political they're light they're funny they're serious they're academic it can really be anything and either way it works and it forces people to engage with a library in a different way so instead of becoming if you ask people to like pick five books that represent them it becomes about identity it becomes like another 
way of taking a photo of who you are or presenting who you are. But if you reframe it in like, what question are you asking and how can these books influence your question or help you along that pursuit of answering it, um, something else comes up and it becomes a little bit less about you, a little bit more about the idea. And so people, I have people come in, I've had over a hundred people come to the library and create these small collections and, and then I have them write cards so you can have a record of who has created collections and you can end up browsing the library and seeing all the people's collections and what they've created and add on to them or be inspired by them or just see their little Polaroid shot and her handwriting. It's, it's really funny. One of the funny, funniest ones I thought was like uh, a collection called Books That People Use to Justify Shitty Behavior. <laughs> and it was like Fountainhead, Mating Captivity, uh, Icons, like about Steve Jobs and Tech Hero. It was just like really, really funny. I, you know, there's, so it's like light like that and it's also can get pretty serious. And I, the way that I share the collections that are created is I take photos of the books and the cards that people fill out and share them on Instagram at Sorted Library and, and, um, and, and start cataloging them. I think once the beauty of the project will evolve as I have more of these rooms and you start to see, hey, somebody's actually asked the question of, you know, what is, what is a secret? And they've actually answered that in both the Vonnegut Library as well as someone else's library. And you can start to see what answers are different and how that works and interacts with each other. What's the response been like from people who've come in? It's it's a people are a little like unsure, you know. I think people are like, I don't know, is my collection good enough <laughs> um, initially? But it really works no matter what. You don't have to have read the books because it's about what books could inform the inquiry that you're asking. And people, it's like a nice way to spend an hour and a half. I mean, honestly, that's why I like the project, and why I. I'm happy that this project could be a 20-year project is because it's just kind of like a nice way to spend an hour and a half with somebody and get to know what they're thinking about in a way that's not direct. I mean, I can certainly argue and understand how it's radical, but what to you makes it so different? Yeah, I mean, I really think we're headed in a way where people are answering questions in a very linear fashion. You know, that all of the methods of discovery and finding information outside of art and academia um, are very, very linear. And it's and it's like that we trusting the algorithms of like Amazon's or Google's to deliver us the information we need. And the, the easier it is, then they're highly incentivized to make it easy to find answers, um, the less of that sort of nonlinear discovery that we have. And there's I was really inspired by like the idea of constraints, breeding creativity, the Ilipo, the French intellectuals that kind of came together and tried to write books without the letter E or, you know, like these real like pursuits, artistic pursuits. But this idea that like a constraint could actually enable you to come up with new answers and think about a, a problem from a different way. And that's what I really see Sorted Library helping people do on a and they, they can feel it right away. You know, I don't want them to, I don't want to just talk about the idea. I want people to actually create a collection and feel what it means to like go to the theology section and pull out a book that might have something to do with the problem you're dealing with in every day or your work problem or your life problem. And in a way that you're never going to get that Amazon suggested read. And you wouldn't even want to buy it or choose it or you're like, what? But here you are spending an hour and a half flipping through the book, pulling out a passage, being interested in it. And I think that, is is radical honestly like the drive for more context 
you know, that you can look to fiction to find your answer to a business problem, that you can look to poetry and understand that it can be the quarter turn or the, the shift in perspective that will help you in your relationship in your life right now or how to deal with with your dog training whatever it is that you are thinking about in your life you know you can look to these other sources and to be able to like sit with that weight of information and time and care that people put into this and life history and ways of being that people have shared and are sharing um, is just remarkable. And to have that be the grounding for any question you ask is is something that I think is is so important today and is missing and that I want to be a champion of and help people understand and feel. I remember one time I was staffing and two people came in and they saw this box of newspapers with Black Panther written on it and they were so excited. They just like took them off the shelf and they were pouring over them and they said, you know, we just came from a gallery over in Chelsea where these were on the wall behind glass and we couldn't turn the pages and look through them. And it's so thrilling to just sit here and have all the time in the world to um, actually read them. Obviously, other archives have, in some cases, the entire run of the Black Panther, but in terms of, you know, accessing it, that's the you know, big thing. Typically, they're closed, you know, open only to a- academics, and they're open only at certain points in time. And you sometimes have a letter of reference in order to even access the material to do research. Whereas here, four days a week, you can come in off the street, and if you're interested in doing research, you can do research. You don't have to be an academic, you don't even have to be a student. You just heard Daniel Pecoraro and Jen Hoyer, two volunteers at the Interference Archive. We interviewed Daniel and Jen about what the archive is, how it functions, for what purposes, and who's involved. The Interference Archive is a physical archive, and that's very important because we talk to a lot of people who don't necessarily understand that we are a physical space with a physical collection. So we have an archive of material produced by social movements around the world, and the parameters for that collection is material produced in multiples for widespread distribution. Things that fit in our collection are things like posters, flyers, newspapers, periodicals, banners, uh, vinyl records, and other music formats, audiovisual material. It's a physical space, but then it's also a social space. It's completely volunteer-run, and it's a community of volunteers who do this work together and who really care deeply about this material. And beyond that community of volunteers, it's a community of people who use this space, who um, use the material, community of people who put on events and attend events and just like come here to share ideas. Yeah, and I think the things that I'd want to add to that statement is that it's a non-hierarchical space. Um, it is a radically inclusive space. Daniel and Jen are both part of the education working group, staff at the archive, and do work in admin and cataloging. They are involved. The Interference Archive organizes itself through working groups, like departments, but self-managed and horizontal in structure. There's an admin working group, a cataloging working group, an audio working group, 
and working groups that emerged to handle more temporary projects, like exhibitions. The education working group that Daniel and I are both part of, and we do like lots of different education-related yeah, things. Yeah, primar- primarily using the archive in a way that supports educators, but also putting on programming that's educational for the community. Yeah, and helping to make sure that the events that happen here are not just someone up and talking about all the things they know, but allow for uh, more participatory education. Yeah, and education in this case not meaning didactic, but meaning you know truly uh, collaborative. We asked Daniel and Jen about their favorite object in the archive and about a favorite exhibition or event that's happened within the archive since they've been involved. Favorite piece, the one that I always use in some way with class visits, is among the issues of Black Panther that we have. We have one where the, you know, they announced Bobby Seale running for mayor of Oakland. For, for me to show that snapshot of the history of the Black Panther Party, the fact that they were using conventional electoral politics to make change, along with all the different things that they did, which were incredibly, incredibly radical and incredibly community-focused, adding that additional step to the different tactics they took um, is an important thing to note. A favorite exhibition... I've worked on a lot of exhibitions and they've all been really great, so it feels like betrayal to pick one. But one that I'm really proud of is a tiny little exhibition that myself and Maggie Schreiner did at the request of the Ace Hotel to do a little exhibit on food and labor issues in the food industry because they were hosting the food book fair. It was awesome to go there and see it in that space and feel like there was some kind of intervention in the bigger conversations that were happening around the food book fair. And to also get feedback that the workers in the hotel restaurants, many of whom were immigrant laborers, were really excited to see this stuff on the walls and see these issues around labor in the food industry being represented in big fancy hotel that they worked in. Considering this episode is the second in a series called Radical Access, we spoke with Jen and Daniel a bit about the word radical. I have so many feelings about the word radical when it comes to things like radical archives and radical librarianship. My big concern is that often this word radical gets used in a way that others the work that we do and makes it exceptional. And when we call this work radical, it allows other people to just continue doing the status quo without feeling like they need to do more. But honestly, I think that what we're doing here should be the status quo. And so I I almost think we shouldn't call it radical because it gives other people an excuse not to do it. I have the same point of view in that every organization should be aspiring to the degree of collaboration, to the degree of flattening the organizational chart. But I feel like as a sort of laboratory for better practices in the field, I'm okay with being called a a radical archivist when I'm here because I'm not able to have that in my day-to-day work. I agree. And I think that issue of the hierarchy in other institutions was really highlighted for me in the last week. I was working through a whole bunch of grant-related paperwork that got to this like hilarious point where I kept having to resubmit it because they wanted the CV of a CEO. And I 
couldn't give them that. And they had asked for an organizational chart, which only showed working groups. It showed no individual positions because there are none. And they kept returning this application to me and being like, we need the CV of your CEO or CEO equivalent. Listen, I know that your computer system wants these specific things. I can't give them to you. And here's why. So let's work together on finding a way around it. And yeah, that that doesn't exist in other spaces. Other spaces don't push back in that way and have those conversations because other spaces have a CEO or something like it, someone at the top. Whereas here, like I staff on Saturdays and whatever, I have like some university degrees, but there's a high school kid who often comes in and helps me. And I don't know if he puts in a lot of time and effort on a project, I'm going to assume he knows more about what he's talking about when I ask him about the project he's doing here than I do. He's got as much expertise to bring to the table when we're working together. And it's really nice to be in a space that uh, encourages that and allows for that. The Interference Archive believes in access to information and sharing resources in the spirit of public conversations. The Archive is collectively run and volunteer powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the Archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. A huge thank you to Ola Ronke, Dev, Jen, and Daniel for speaking with us for this episode. Please visit our show notes to learn more about the Free Black Women's Library, Sorted Library, and Interference Archive. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.